I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And it is a really rainy afternoon here. I can hear it beating against my windows, so I'll be curious to see if you can hear any rain in the background of this recording. But we're back again, chugging along through talking about Bible translation and the effect of Bible translating and Bible translations on our understanding of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And what we're going to do today is we're going to zoom all the way in on one particular word and how it's been translated and understood through different translations and through time and history, and what that has done for our understanding of the word, and how should we understand it, and is there a difference, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not even going to mention the word yet, because most of you probably won't know this word, so I'm going to start from somewhere else. Because most of you would know the word agape. You know that word, right? You've heard pastors and teachers talk about agape love, how that's God's love for us, that it's an unconditional love. And you probably know it's Greek. It comes out of the New Testament, but it's just the Greek word for love. There's a couple of different words for love. And we mentioned this in season one of the podcast, how there's more than one word for love in the New Testament. But this word specifically is usually picked on to depict or describe God's love for us. And so if I just mention the word, Agape, it's in your your cultural understanding. If you're a Christian, you have a, a Christian culture that you're a part of, whether you're only a little bit a part of that culture or a lot a part of that culture, the word agape is kind of a part of that culture that you know it, you've heard that word, you might not have a deep understanding of it. So generally, when you say agape in a church, people will know what you're saying. It gets a lot of press in the evangelical world. And it's said to define God's love because John in 1 John 4, 8 said that God is love. And that's typically why we say it kind of defines God. And he talks about it in other verses and other books as well. But it just gets a lot of press. But that's only one word for love in one language. What I want to start thinking about now is, How else do we tend to think of God? It depends on where you go in the Bible and what you associate him with. But I'm going to start really abstract and we're going to work our way down to this specific word that I want to talk about in a little bit. But when you talk about, you know, describe God, what is he or who is he? We tend to start with really mm, big ideas that are more about a God. They're about deity. Words like eternal omniscient, um, omnipresent, omnipresent, (laughs) I usually get that one messed up, omnipresent and omnipotent. These are descriptions that are applicable to deities and also to God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, but they aren't exclusive to our God, right? If we want to talk about how other gods are talked about, if you want to talk about even just mythical Greek and Roman gods of Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes, and Jupiter, and all of these guys, they could have been described as omniscient, or omnipotent, or eternal, right? Not all of them have all of those descriptions, 
but I think they were all described as eternal. And was Zeus omnipotent? I'm not sure. But other gods of the ancient Near East would have probably been thought of that way. So these words, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, express supernatural powers. But they're not personal characteristics. They're not personal characteristics of the God of the Bible, of Yahweh. So what do we attribute to Yahweh of the Bible? What personal characteristics do we say that he has? Well, they're the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, all of those things. We also tend to associate the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians 5 with God, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all of those things. But all of those things, everything I've mentioned so far, is in the New Testament. We tend to see a very personal God in the New Testament and a very distant and kind of dark and looming God in the Old Testament. And I'm a part of a Bible study right now that is going through the Old Testament. And the Old Testament to me is very familiar. It's very comfortable terrain. I love Hebrew, and so I would like to hang out in the Old Testament, and I have some angst with the New Testament, actually. I'm not a fan of Paul. I'll just leave it at that. But in the Old Testament, I'm very familiar, and I was kind of surprised to hear how unfamiliar other people are with the Old Testament through this Bible study, and I didn't realize that the stereotype of people not knowing the Old Testament very well, how true it was. But yeah, so the God of the Old Testament is seen as kind of this distant, kind of angry, dark, mysterious God that does a lot and is kind of destructive. But there is one really good passage in the Old Testament that describes God. It kind of gets overshadowed by the New Testament, I think, but it's a really good passage that describes God. And even better yet, it's God describing himself. And it's Exodus 34, 6. And I have this verse here. And it's actually longer than just verse 6. It's a longer passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, though. And this is out of the ESV Bible. The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So it's all really good stuff. But... I guess when we read those words, we don't really specifically know what they mean. Merciful and gracious. What's the difference between merciful and gracious? If we're to understand, if we're to understand that passage, it would actually give us a really good understanding of God, of his personal nature, and how he defines himself. Not described by another person, not even by an apostle like Paul or John, but described by God. So, that list of words in that Exodus passage. It's actually restated and referred to in four other books. In Nehemiah 9, Psalms mentions it or restates it in a different way in three different chapters. Joel 2 and Jonah 4 all talk about God in these terms, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. These kinds of terms, it's used what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six different passages where it's this phrase, this description of God is restated. So it's a pretty important description of God. So let's look at those terms again. 
And this is the words, I took it out of the ESV translation, but they're pretty similar in other modern English translations, okay? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness or truth. And there's so many ways to define those words and even how they should be understand from, <laughs> understood from the Hebrew so that we often misunderstand them. Like what's the difference between merciful and gracious and what exactly is steadfast love? Well, unfortunately for you, <laughs> we're going to ignore most of those and focus in on one of them. That last one that I mentioned, steadfast love. Okay. And in different translations, it translates that a couple of different ways. The ESV has it as steadfast love. King James has it as goodness. The NIV just says love. The NET says loyal love. And the Spanish Bible, because I was curious, what does the Spanish Bible say? Misericordia, mercy. So they have mercy twice in that passage. So we're clearly confused as to how to interpret and translate that word. And yet it's one of the most important words for defining God in the entire Bible. I would say just as important as agape, if not more important. And yet you probably don't know what that little Hebrew word is. The way it's pronounced, and this might hurt its reputation because you have to do the whole throat clearing thing. The word is chesed. You can say hesed if you want with an H, hesed. But if you have um, heard of Jews that are Hasidic Jews, it comes from the same word. Hasid, Hasidic, chesed, or hesed. It's all through the Bible. There's an entire chapter in Psalms, I think it's Psalms 136, that celebrates God's hesed towards his people. But what is it? Now there's a song that's modeled after that chapter. Uh, for he is good, he's above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise. I think, did uh, Third Day sing that song? I don't know. I don't know anymore. But in that song, it's translated as love. Just love. So his love endures forever? Is that what that whole psalm is talking about? Nope. It's not love. Love is only a chunk of the idea of what hesed is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and forth between calling it chesed and hesed, because I want to do it the proper way, chesed, but I don't always do it well enough, so I'll sometimes just do hesed. Anyway, love is a chunk, is a part of what hesed means. But here's the problem. Here's why we don't have a consistent translation of that word. It's because we don't have an English equivalent for that word. We do not have a one-to-one -one word that means exactly what hesed means in Hebrew. So we just have to juggle things around to try to portray the meaning of that word. And this is one of the reasons why translation is tricky and why it's important to have teaching that accompanies reading the Bible. Because just reading the Bible alone without being a part of a church that teaches what it means is a bit of an incomplete relationship to the Bible. You need to learn about the Bible, not just to read the words it says and try and figure out the meaning. That works because the Holy Spirit can guide us and teach us in all understanding, but a church can also considerably help with that. So love is a part of the meaning of Hesed, but it does not capture the whole idea. So why do we say love or loving kindness so much? Part of it is that that's what the King James Bible said. Not to go back to the King James Bible or anything. We don't do that enough around here. But that's how influential the King James Bible was. 
if it translated a word a certain way, it kind of had an influence on other translations after that for a while. Lots of things were modeled in it, and it was hard to move away from a lot of ideas and connections that the King James made. And hesed being love or loving kindness is one of those ideas. So what does it really mean? How is God describing himself? This is like the mother load. This is like the holy grail of finding how who God is is how he defines himself, right? So, well, let's look at some other places in the Bible where this word is used and get a feel for it. So another famous quote that comes with this word is Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to, and you could probably finish this, right? But to do justice and to love mm, and to walk humbly with your God. That, mm, that blank in there is hesed. Chesed. <laughs> um, so what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mm, and to walk humbly with your God. When I try to say that without looking at anything, I immediately think mercy because that's how I memorized it when I was a kid, probably. Um, But I looked it up, and in my Bible, it was kindness. Kindness. Mercy. Kindness. So we get an idea from that, that it is to be kind and gentle and compassionate towards our neighbors. Is that what that word means? Hesed? So there, it's normally translated mercy. Okay, I'm going to throw some facts at you. You ready? So if you want to know a word in English, and you don't know what it means, you look it up in a dictionary, right? Well, (laughs) uh, sorry to burst any bubbles, but you can't really do that with biblical languages. Biblical languages don't have dictionaries. They have something called lexicons. And a lexicon is just a fancy word for dictionary, but they don't call it a dictionary because it's not the same thing. A lexicon is where you'll find a word like hesed, and you can look it up and see how many times it's used in the Bible and where it's used in the Bible but they don't give you a definition of the word. They give you what are called glosses. Glosses, just like lip gloss. This is how the word has been translated in each instance that it's been translated. So like the word agape, it would tell you how the word agape has been translated all, I don't know how many times it appears in the New Testament. Let's say a hundred times. And they'll tell you, okay, the main translation for it is love. And then the secondary translation for it is, and whatever else it could be. I don't know what else. Hesed has the same in a lexicon. So it would tell you a whole bunch of things because it's translated a whole bunch of ways. But what it's telling you is not a definition. It's telling you it's translation, how it has been translated. That means all the ways we've tried to find an English equivalent in one or two words. But how often can you translate a word from one language into another and use only one word? Even with the simplest word, you run into problems because you have different understandings of very simple things, okay? So we're going to go into a little bit of a thought exercise of how to understand why this is hard. Because you might be thinking, what's the big deal? We could just call it love or kindness or mercy and be done with it, right? No. Okay. So here's some (laughs) examples for why this is not a simple topic, okay? Hand, in Hebrew, is the word yad, Y-A-D, if we want to spell it out, yad. But mm -mm, it can also mean the whole arm. So if you see the Hebrew word yad, 
you have to use context to see if it means hand or arm. And if, say, somewhere it says that his yod was cut off, does that mean his hand was cut off or his arm was cut off? Well, hopefully we can keep on reading and it'll tell us exactly how much was cut off. So in some languages, here's a different one, they don't give directions by using a perspective, meaning they don't say go straight, go left, go right. In some Australian Aboriginal languages, they use the cardinal directions. They say go north, go south, go east, go west. That means you always have to know the compass. You always have to know where is north and south to be able to follow the directions, and you have to know how to act on it instead of according to your own body. So how often has someone said, turn left, or it's on your left, and you're like, uh, my left or your left? So it's a perspective problem. Australian Aborigines don't necessarily have that problem, but how would they translate a verse in the Bible that says something like in Genesis 13:9, where Lot and Abraham are talking about where they'll move in the land, and Abraham says, if you go left, I'll go right, and if you go right, I'll go left? Imagine being a translator for an Australian Aboriginal tribe, and they're like, oh, dude, <laughs> how do you want to do this? And they're like, I don't know. We don't talk about left and right. We talk about our north hand and our south hand. Do you want to just do north hand and south hand? Good question, right? If the translator is very strict and literal, he'll be introducing a whole cultural concept that there is no understanding of in that target language or culture. You're bringing in a whole concept that has to be taught now and won't make sense for somebody to just read it. It'll be literal. It'll be correct and accurate translation of the Bible, but it'll be pretty useless for understanding. That makes sense? Side note, <laughs> left hand and right hand directions are now used in those Aboriginal languages. They just didn't used to be. So it's a defunct example now. It would be accurate and applicable uh, 50 or 100 years ago, but not so much now. But here's another word that doesn't have a straight translation into English. Sheol. What is Sheol? It was a Hebrew word for a Hebrew understanding of death and the afterlife. It wasn't hell. It wasn't just death or the grave. It wasn't just the place where a person is buried. But it did reference those ideas, and it was related to all of those things. So how do we translate it in English? Sometimes we just use the same word. We just drop in Sheol because we don't have that specific cultural idea. We don't have that whole package of ideas all together in one. Um, but sometimes we use the word hell because that's our cultural idea. That's the package that we have. And I'll always remember this example. Um, back in the day, man, this was when I was like, married a year or two, I went to a Bible translation boot camp is the best way that I can explain it. And it was for people, mostly college students that were interested in Bible translation. And they would do these little boot camps of a week long seminar kind of thing, where you try out translation principles and learn on working a language, learn about linguistic ideas, and you learn translation problems and how to deal with them. And generally learn about translation enough that it was kind of a marketing thing to recruit Bible translators, but also just to educate people on Bible translation as a whole. 
And one of the exercises that we did was to translate or come up with a different paraphrase for Psalm 23 and verse 2 specifically is what I remember. The line goes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So the problem that the translators presented was that some cultures don't have a specific word for the color green. And to me and you, maybe that's like, what? That's ridiculous. Well, maybe you should have a word for green. So there, make up a word for green and be done with it. But that's not a translator's job. A translator's job is not to change the culture. It is not to invent language, unless it's specifically about spiritual terminology that we need to convey specific ideas about Yahweh, not to change our understanding of green and blue, right? If a different culture has a different way of expressing themselves about nature, that's fine. Don't mess with it. So some cultures will just categorize colors a different way. Like they'll have a term for reds and a term for blues and green will be in with the blues, something like that. I don't remember the specifics for how or why this problem was this way. I just remember you had to figure out a different way to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures, because if a target language does not have the word green, you can't say green pastures. So I don't remember the particulars, but how do you translate green in Psalm 23 too? Well, you want to get the idea of what's behind this. What are we trying to portray? What are we trying to express? Why is it green? It's green because it's rich with moisture and it's growing well. That's the idea. Green is not so important as conveying the idea of growing really well, like a garden that's like, oh, this is so nice. It's doing so well. So there's a couple of words that you could use, even in English. Verdant means green and growing. It captures both rich and green. Lush is also possible, and it would be a good choice because that means rich, but it doesn't have the word green necessarily attached to it, and that would be a great idea because there's no green, but you understand that means growing really well. So I wanted to give you those examples so that you could see you can't just translate word for word if you want understanding, and there's always cultural problems with just translating exactly what's written in the Bible. If you don't have a word for green, you can't translate that word to mean green, but you can say lush or verdant to get the same message across. So you always have to be thinking back to what is the goal of the translation? So with that in mind, how do we translate hesed? To try to figure that out, we're going to look at some more passages that have that word in there. And a lot of them, okay, so don't worry, a lot of them will be familiar to you. I'm using lots of narrative stories, okay? So in Ruth, my first example here is Ruth. And if you don't remember the story of Ruth, Naomi and her husband and her two sons go to Moab because there's a famine. Her two sons get married there, so they have Moabite wives. Then all the men in the family die, Naomi's husband and her two sons. And then the famine is done in Israel, so she wants to move back to Israel. And she says to her daughters-in-law, look, um, basically your obligation to me is done. Like, why don't you go back to your families, live in your own country? I'm going to go back to my country, but don't feel like you need to come with me. 
because I know it's it's a different country and you have no further obligation to me to help me, to take care of me, even though all the men in my family are gone. So Naomi says, this is what she says to her daughters-in-law, and this is basically a paraphrase, but she says, you've been loyal and faithful to me, so you go ahead and go home to your family's house. And this is where our report comes in. May Yahweh show chesed to you. May Yahweh show chesed to you. And in the idea, it's faithfulness or goodness. Isaiah 54.10, and this is just like more a poetic section, talks about how the mountains might disappear, but Yahweh's hesed for us won't go anywhere, and his covenant won't be taken away because he's compassionate. So that's my paraphrase. (laughs) And there's many stories in Genesis and Exodus where we see hesed. Abraham asks Sarah, his wife, to show him hesed by telling everyone in foreign territory that he's her brother. He's asking for chesed from his wife by asking her to call him her brother, to lie for him. (laughs) Okay, that's not complicating at all. And there's Jacob, that jerky brother of Esau. When he moves back uh, to the land of his family, he prays to God and he says, You've done so many acts of hesed to me. When I crossed this river the last time, I just had my staff. And now I have two companies of people. So he's saying, wow, God, you've done so much for me. Look how much I have. You've done so many acts of hesed for me. So it's important to remember, here's the kind of the key for understanding hesed everywhere in the Bible. All of this is within the context of how covenants and honor were very important in the time of the Bible. There were certain obligations that people had to each other. Tribes were only tribes because they were loyal to each other and defended each other and intermarried with each other. God asked Israel to be in a covenant with him, one that would define how they lived and what God would honor them with. Abraham entered into a covenant with God through a special covenant-making ceremony in Genesis 15, and that covenant was for Abraham and his descendants. David was in a covenant with God that guaranteed a king on the throne from his descendants. And Jesus spoke of a new covenant in his blood in Matthew 26. And when we talk about covenant, now we have a whole podcast episode about this in season one. A covenant is the same thing as testament, and it's nearly the same thing as a contract. Some of those covenants or contracts or testaments are conditional, such as the one with Israel about staying in the land where each party must agree to terms, and if the terms are broken, the covenant is broken. Some are unconditional to the people involved, such as the covenant with Abraham, that if the people violate the covenant, or if Abraham had violated the covenant, it would still stand. It did not matter if the people broke the covenant. So again, what is Hesed? What does this come back to? Well, it very much relates to faithfulness and covenants. Whenever we see the word covenant, and very often when we see the word faithfulness, chesed is almost always pretty close by. In fact, when you see um, grace and truth, that term is used a lot. Uh, I think our church used to have a banner up in the front that said Jesus was full of grace and Jesus is full of truth. That's taken from the New Testament, but the idea is from the Old Testament, and it's quoting chesed Ve'emet. That's the phrase. It's not grace. It's hesed. Okay? 
So is it just love or mercy? Do we just say love or kindness or mercy because we have cultural understandings of those things and we just don't know where to go with Hesed? I think that's honestly part of it. Because we don't have a cultural concept of one of the key aspects of Hesed, and that is of being connected to a covenant or a treaty. This is something that demands loyalty, but is based in love and honorable intentions. And that's a lot to put into one little word. We don't have a carbon copy concept in English. We just don't. So, you know, um, this used to be a thing a couple of years ago, maybe five or ten years ago. Word clouds, where you would search online and it would be a part of a word cloud. And so it would put related search terms together with this word. I forget how that exactly worked. And I didn't do it and use it at all. So I'm going to relate this to a spider web. If you think of Hesed as being in the middle of a spider web, there's a lot of other words and ideas on that same spider web that Hesed is inherently connected to. That if you jiggle the spider web, if you touch it on one spot, it'll connect with Hesed somehow, some way. So let me tell you what those other words are that are absolutely a part of the concept of Hesed. Number one, covenant. That's the word for agreement or treaty or contract or testament. We have so many words for it, right? The word hesed is very often used together with the word for covenant, and it's used within that context. There is no hesed without a covenant. You cannot act with hesed unless you have a covenant to act according to. It is the frame for how hesed is used. It is the way that there is hesed at all, because no covenant means there's no hesed, because hesed is never a random act of kindness or mercy. It is within a context. Okay, the second word is loyalty, because if you have a covenant or a contract and you want to do well with it, you must have loyalty. So hesed is a covenant loyalty, a loyalty tied to a particular agreement. So along with that is faithfulness, and that's very similar to loyalty, but it's honorable loyalty. Chesed is very often together with the word for truth or faithfulness, and those two ideas together are pretty much a power couple to define God's ways, right? Chesed ve'emet, and chesed can be so many different things, right? Love, grace, mercy, loyalty, and then on the other side, emet can be translated as faithfulness or even truth. So it's it's really a power couple to describe God. Now the last one, love. It's definitely connected to and a part of the word hesed. Love is the motivation and the way that the covenant is carried out. It is carried out with love. It is done with love. It is not love itself. It is loyalty and faithfulness within a covenant uh, framework, but it's done with love. So what do we, what do we do here? Because now we are, our brains are stocked full of, you know, images for how to think about this word. So when you encounter this word in the Bible, number one, I'm sorry, because you probably won't always know when you're looking at it. But number two, what do you do with at least the stories that I've now told you that include the idea of hesed? Do we just stick with love or loving kindness because there's just too much packed into that word? Well, you can (laughs) if you want to. 
um, it, it does get really complicated if you try to pull out all the strings that chesed is involved with. But what can you think about? How can you think about the word chesed? And how can you think about God? Because this is what we should be thinking about, right? Okay, so it's one word. It's one way to define and describe God. And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it paints him with such beautiful colors that I wish everybody knew about it. So how can we think about God? And how can we how can this help us understand God better? Okay, this is this is how it helped me understand God better. I think the number one thing is to remember that in the Bible, the context for so many of the concepts that we talk about, the context is not feelings, but covenants and honor. And that above all, even when nobody else is keeping their end of the bargain, their end of the treaty or covenant or agreement or whatever you want to call it, that God is always very reluctant to end his covenants. Some of them are unconditional, like we mentioned, and he will never back out of those covenants. But other ones are conditional, such as Israel staying in the land. You know, when Israel went into captivity to the Babylonians and the Assyrians, God just sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them that they were going to get kicked out of the land, that quote unquote, the land would vomit them out because of the sin that they had committed. And God sent them so many prophets when he could have just done it immediately because they broke the covenant. They broke it. It was done. But he was so unwilling to just throw it away. And he just did not want to break his end of the covenant. He wasn't breaking his covenant. He was fulfilling his covenant by saying, hey, you didn't stand up to your end of the bargain. This is what our covenant said, that you would be kicked out of the land. So God is just so reluctant to go against his covenants, even if the people don't hold up their end. And that isn't God being like ushigushi or puppy doggish, feely with us. It's him being very reluctant to leave his end of the bargain because he's honorable. And just like in Exodus 34, 6, he's slow to anger and he loves us and he has compassion on us. And even that word compassion, by the way, is a really interesting one. It comes from the word for womb, as in where a baby is grown. That when we talk about God's compassion, it's this very kind of maternal instinct to care for and protect, not necessarily in a gentle way, sometimes in a powerful, strong way. So this overall description of God that you can get out of Exodus 34, 6 is a God that makes agreements with people, that wants to be with them, that wants to care for them, but must live in a certain way with them. And even when they don't keep up their end of the covenant, God only very slowly turns away from the good side of the covenant to enact the the part that he doesn't want to, but he told people what would happen. So what's the takeaway? You have to use context to determine the meaning of a word, and it doesn't matter who you talk to, a linguist, a Bible translator, a Bible teacher, they will all tell you that context is how you understand a particular word in a particular spot, not what a lexicon with a list of glosses says, and that the heritage of the Bible, how we have translated things before, has a huge impact, for better or worse, 
So if you see the word for love or compassion or mercy in the Bible, try not to think of it as feelings such as pity or something that squeezes your chest, you know, twinginess. But rather remember that the Bible has a context of covenants and honor and loyalty and that we don't necessarily need to drum up feelings for God and feel oshigoshi for him. But he does ask for our loyalty and to be honorable in our covenant with him. And I am so happy about that because I hate, <laughs> I hate conjuring up emotion and I don't like to do that with God and he never makes me. And that is really, I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad for that. All right. So this was a longer one. I hope it was interesting. I hope it was good. I love the word hesed. There's a lot more that I didn't mention, but you got the basic gist of it. So yeah, go run with mercy, compassion, (laughs) love and loving kindness and remember loyalty and covenant loyalty and faithfulness and a love that means honor instead of shame. All right, you guys have a great day and I'll talk to you again later. Bye.